Welcome to Losing a Child, Always Andy's Mom. On this podcast, we journey through the devastating experience of the death of a child. Grief is seldom discussed openly in our culture, and the death of a child makes people feel even more uncomfortable. We approach the topic openly and honestly, speaking to people who have lost loved ones and experts who help care for them. Whether you are a parent experiencing loss or someone who wants to support another going through this tragedy, this podcast strives to offer hope and help. Welcome to episode 156 of Losing a Child, Always Andy's Mom. I'm Marcy Larson, Andy's mom. Now, I never thought that I would have an episode that would include a game show contestant and a fiction book author, but that's what we have here today. So I have the privilege of speaking with Kelly, Chris's mom. As I stated earlier, Kelly's grief journey is really unique. The word she uses is actually weird. She says her journey is weird. But in many ways, it is really beautiful. The way that she talks about her son, Chris, and how she was really triggered to start her grief journey after being on a game show. She got to experience the fun of being on that game show, feeling like Chris was sitting there right beside her. And she has really gone on to do some amazing things. As a little aside here, I do want to remind all of you that you too can be on the Always Andy's Mom podcast. Just email me at marcy at andysmom.com. I am certainly looking for guests for this fall and winter. So feel free to email and just share your story. I love, love, love hearing stories of all of our amazing, wonderful children. And whether you want to be on the podcast or you don't, it doesn't matter. I love to hear from you anyway. So take a little time to write me. Also, go on the website at andysmom.com. On the website, you can find many different episodes, now 156 of them, and they are organized by category. So if there are certain things that you would like to hear more about, you can just go to the website and look at podcast by category and find just exactly what you're looking for. But for right now, I just want you to sit back and listen to Kelly, Chris's mom. Thank you so much, Kelly, for coming on the Always Andy's Mom podcast today. Hi, Marcy. I'm so excited to be here with you. I am really looking forward to talking and hearing more about all that you've done because you've done some kind of unique things really that are different from some of my other guests on the podcast. So I'm excited to hear about it. <laughs> yeah, weird is probably the the word that I would choose. But yes, oh. I'm glad to share. You just take me wherever <laughs> you want to go. I'll, I'll, I'll volunteer any information. Well, very good. Well, let's start out by just talking about your son, Chris. Yeah, my Chris. So my husband and I have three natural born kids, and then we adopted two teenagers. Both of us were in education. And so it was natural for us to sort of fall in love with vulnerable students. And so uh, we adopted Chris. He moved in with us when he was 14. We adopted him when he was 15. And we were in Middle Earth, Kansas, and everybody has the same putty colored skin. And Chris was the only African-American teenager in the school district, small school district. And so we just, he caught our attention right away and we fell in love with him. And he was in the foster care system since he was three years old. And that's why he was in uh, Kansas in that town. And he had a rough start. He had a whole life before he entered ours mm -hmm. and he was found in Wichita drunk and caught cut up. His feet were all cut up and naked at age three on the streets of Wichita. Oh my yeah, he's just so vulnerable and was in the foster care system 
his entire memory and uh, lots of things happened to him in foster care. If you can name a kind of abuse that happened to Chris. So when we invited him into our family, it, he was such a joy. And he is as a lot of kids who grow up with an enormous and unfair amount of trauma, I was kind of stuck with a child, Peter Pan spirit energy about him kind of stuck at the age when the, the most severe trauma happened to him. And so he was absolutely playful and delightful and exuberant, my most celebratory, my most expressive child. And he lived with us until he went all the way through high school. He did well. He performed very well physically and academically in sports. He got a football scholarship for his college freshman year, but he came from a DNA of addiction. And we always told him that with both of your parents so severely addicted, that you're vulnerable to that. And so Mm -hmm. be careful, son, because if you ever open that door, it might be hard to shut. And when he went off to college, he really was given, afforded a lot of extra time to make decisions on his own for the first time. And so sure. Mm-hmm. One semester of college passed and he decided maybe army will offer a little more structure. So he joined the army and just nailed it. He was so strong and so enthusiastic to be there. The army loved him and he got through basic perfectly and got through training really well. And then time and money entered his life. And again, it was for someone vulnerable to addiction and running from trauma emotionally. Yeah he started using and the army decided they didn't need him anymore after he began to exhibit alcohol and drug issues. And so he came back to Kansas. We enrolled him in college. I'm not sure he went even a single day. I think he used all of his FAFSA money on drugs and probably started selling. And so this began his adult life of in and out of rehabs in and out of jail and uh, in and out of emergency room overdose situations. And it was hard, you know, as parents of a, someone who's addicted, you have to say no a lot and have boundaries. And that really sucks because all you want to do to your kids is say yes to everything. And he couldn't be trusted with money or uh, resources. And so we were uh, encouraging and supportive and we wanted his recovery attempts to be successful. Mm-hmm. And we told him at age 24, after multiple attempts and failures of sobriety, that if you can stay sober for six months at this halfway house that you're at, if you can have a little success under your belt, we're going to bring you out to Colorado where we had moved and you can move in with us and we'll be your support system. We'll, we'll create a new life together. Yeah. And so this is 2020. Now take yourself back. <laughs> it wasn't long ago. That's when COVID was a mess and all everything was shut down. You know, the streets were empty. Yeah. Uh, Black Lives Matter was filling the streets. And so it was a chaotic summer and I was living, I was retired from teaching. Um, my parents and myself and my husband all live in Colorado. My husband's a superintendent of schools out here. And so One day, the sheriff walks into my husband's office at school and says that that Chris is gone, that they had found him in Wichita and he had taken his life. And we suspect that he had gone off the wagon again and shame got him. And so that began sort of the shocking place in our life where we, we had to sort of snap into a different reality. And my poor husband had to go back to work immediately because they were at that time, they were trying to decide if they were even going to have school. You know, it was like a school's going to be open. This was July heading into August. Now, are we even having school? We have to have hybrid online isolation and masks, no masks. It was a mess. So he didn't really get to grieve at all. We drove to Wichita and got his ashes and brought him back. And we thought we would have a memorial service for him at Christmas time and we could bring all the other siblings in. And so we didn't really mark it with a funeral either. We just had his ashes on the counter and I mean, on a, a like a, a special counter and Steve went back to work and then I laid down on the couch and didn't move. And I'm sure your audience and yourself can understand that I tried to lay very still. So I didn't feel, and it looks like morning from the outside, but it actually was me trying not to feel a thing. Maybe I can sleep through 
yeah, all of this. And, you know, it meant I'm not eating well, I'm not showering, I'm not taking care of myself or anything. And so I lost all of my sort of creative energy and will to get up and function normally. I just was going to try and sit really, really still. Well, you know, you hear that old adage, time heals all wounds. And you think to yourself, okay, I just need enough time to go by and things will get better. Yeah. But in all actuality, it does not. Time does not heal all wounds. If you sit there and do nothing, you are not going to improve. So really hard work can yeah. start to heal you, but time itself isn't. And and I think that's what a lot of us fall into that trap mm-hmm. is that you just count the days and you think, well, maybe once I make it to and you put this some sort of date on the calendar, mm-hmm. I will be able to get up then and do stuff then and but it's, it doesn't work that way at all. No, the date keeps getting pushed back. And yes, the, the really tragic thing about isolation is that, you know, it was really isolation that took my son in the end. He felt alone and defeated and yeah. desperate. And that's why he made the choice he made. And after suicide, people don't really know how to talk to the parents or family about it either. Mm-hmm. My, my faith community was very quiet. Uh, My friends were very quiet. And it's not that I really wanted to sort of word vomit all over them about my grief, but it was their, their silence made it worse somehow. And I, Mm -hmm. my brain, my brain could, could rationalize that they don't know what to say. And they think if they bring it up, it's going to hurt me. So they don't want to bring it up. But actually, now I'm sitting in a place of isolation that my son did too. And I'm not saying I wanted my life to end, because I had lots of reasons to be alive. But you feel super stuck Mm -hmm. in that place until you get up off the couch and do something. And so I was fortunate enough that an opportunity arose in which it forced me off the couch. But if that happened, hadn't happened, this was only two years ago, would I still be avoiding the pain and sitting in isolation and Mm -hmm. trying to sit really still? I don't know. You have to be so intentional about choosing to move forward that if I didn't have an opportunity force me out of it, I don't think I don't, I don't know. I can't predict what would have happened, but it scares me a little bit that I sat there as long as I did. Mm-hmm. Well, it is scary. I mean, I was telling you before we started recording yesterday was the four year anniversary of Andy's death. And it was, it just got me just, just yeah. again. And I was a little bit like that, just kind of sitting and not wanting to get up and not wanting to do anything and it was my husband like you need to do something we need to do something Mm -hmm. somebody trying to push me a little bit because I I just felt so tired you know I just I just felt tired I felt tired of trying and and tired of the grief I mean it's been four years it just feels really really heavy especially on days like that Yeah, heavy is a good word for it. And birthdays, anniversaries, holidays, Memorial Day. I mean, there's always a reason to feel it acutely. And um, I've learned that I have to invite the memories in and go ahead and feel them all because the instinct is to push back and not think about it so I don't hurt. And it really is an act of courage to sit in and invite it all back in and to feel it fully. And that's, that's hard to convince someone to do. They almost have to decide it for themselves until the moment where they can't stand it anymore and they have to do it. But yeah, it's a strange journey. And, and, and people who haven't experienced the loss of a child rarely understand Mm -hmm. the length of time that it takes. I have a, a dear friend who's lost her child nine years ago, and it is like, it was yesterday sometimes for her. Yeah. And only parents who've lost a child can fully understand that because everybody else is really eager for you to get over it and get yeah. on with your life. <laughs> yeah. I love how you said that it's an act of courage to think about those memories and live and really experience those. That is just a beautiful way of putting it. Thank you. Because that that is what it is. It's it. It takes a lot of courage to feel because it hurts. Well, let me tell you, let me tell you how it was forced upon me. So I was an educator in Kansas and I 
applied for a game show, Ellen DeGeneres's Game of Games, which is not Jeopardy, it's a clown show, but it's a super fun show. And so I sent an audition tape in two years prior to Chris's death and assumed because I hadn't heard anything that I must have got declined. I mean, I completely right. forgot about it. So much happened. I retired and moved to Colorado and I lost Chris. And so it wasn't on my radar at all. And my students helped me make the audition tape, but you have to have a little audition tape to, to do it. So six weeks after Chris passed away, I'm still on the couch. My husband's mm -hmm. busy with school. I get a call from the Ellen DeGeneres game show people and they go, hey, we got your audition tape two years ago. And the producers and the casting department would love to talk to you about coming on the show. And I'm like, what? <laughs> and so long story short, I did an interview with him, but in my heart, I'm like, I can't even shower. How am I supposed to get on a game show and right. act silly and playful and be a cheerleader when this really devastating thing happened to me just six weeks ago? And so I decided that I was, I just was going to go ahead and take advantage of the situation. They were going to fly me out and all expense paid everything. And I'm like, well, it'll get me off the couch. Right. And a little bit of you has got to feel like this is maybe ordained somehow, right? I mean, it's been two a years. And then, yeah, I mean, you had yeah. to have felt that you had to have felt I that did. there was a little bit of God intervening or yeah. <laughs> Chris and God together or something. I mean, that's what I would be. Feeling. You're exactly right. I'd be feeling like I don't really want to do this. But clearly somebody thinks that I should. So guess yep. maybe I should. That was the only reason I went, Marcy. That yeah. and just, I'm like, I got to do something because I'm going to make myself sick and I'm going to lose myself if I don't right. do something. So it did feel orchestrated. I agree 100%. So I go to California and it's, we are the very first production of any kind in Los Angeles. The Warner Brothers set has not done any shows or movies because of the COVID lockdown in California. And we're the very first ones to open up. So there's serious, there's no audience. Every contestant is in their own trailer. There's no talking to anybody. It looks like you fell right into a contagion movie. It's everybody's wearing full hazmat outfits yeah. with the, with the the hat and the visor and the gloves and the gown and the booty covers. And, and I, so the first thing they do is they put you in a hotel room for six days for quarantine. Mm -hmm. And I was in my hotel room all by myself for six days and had to have four COVID tests. And they were just, this was serious. Right. And so it was during those six days that I began to panic pridefully about faking being happy on this show. Like, yeah. I haven't mourned. I haven't done the work that I need to do. And I'm going to get on, on TV and act like a clown. And this is ridiculous to consider. And so it forced me in this hotel room to invite Chris in and be courageous. And just, I journaled and I prayed and I practiced talking and I talked to him and I cried and slept and I just poured all of my truth into that little isolated space so that I could face it. And it was hard and it was painful. And, but it was also, you know, six days later, you know, it's time to me to go to set for the first day. I was lighter and Chris was beside me. I had kind of this imagination of him mm -hmm. linking arms with me and partnering with me in all of this, because he would be so crazy excited about this playful opportunity. Right. And yeah. big, my biggest hype, hype man too. And so I just, before every game that I played, I prayed and just thanked him for being with me and said, let's go have fun. And so it was a process of sort of doing it with him. Mm -hmm. And I mean, long story short, I won the game. And <laughs> so basically, if anyone in your audience has seen the show, you play one game. And if you win that, you go to the next round. And if you win that, you go to the next round. And then there's only one person standing at the end of the show. And that was me. Wow. And so me and Ellen are on the, I know we're on the stage together. Right. And there's no audience, but they're kind of piping in noise of an audience. And she was incredibly sweet. And I actually, I actually got hurt on one of the games. I popped my knee up into my cheekbone and gave myself a black eye. And so she kept checking on me to make sure I was okay. And she said, she liked my outfit. And like, you know, we had like little girl talk before. And when I was all done and I had won some money, I won $75,000. Wow. I know it's just stupid, crazy. <laughs> and 
I know. But um, she has this sidekick DJ guy named Twitch, who kind of is her co-host of the show. And he does like little DJ music at the end. And so after I won and the show's ending, they have all this lights going on and music and applause playing and everybody's sort of dancing and and I didn't see any of that all I saw was Chris beside me playing and dancing right so when I left California I had hope again it wasn't that I was magically healed I don't want to say that Mm -hmm. but it forced me that whole set of circumstances forced me to face my pain and invite Chris back into the joy part of my heart. Cause you know, you don't want to invite those memories in because that's going to hurt. You're going to miss them more. And so I was able to play on stage with Chris and be authentic and genuinely myself. And it wasn't fake and it was real. And I went home feeling like I, I'm going to be okay. And so was my family. And so wow. a lot happened after that. It took a long time for me to sort of get my other creative energies back again. I've been writing a book for seven years and I had I've been learning how to play the guitar and all these things were put down after Chris passed away. But after I got back from the game show, I couldn't pick them up right away. But if, after Christmas, after we had the memorial service, after some time went by, I began to have my creative energy back. And so, boy, it feels like it took 10 years to travel through that. But it was really just the space of one year that I could stand confidently in myself again, in my truth. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I'm still, still struggling, right? Because we have all the anniversaries and all of the fresh, uh, you know, events that happen without him being there. And, uh, you know, all of his siblings and my husband are all struggling still in their same ways and trying to get on with their life. And it's just, you know, we're never going to be the same. We just aren't. No. We're always just going to carry this low grade sadness with us all the time. And the the mourning and the loss does not get smaller. It's just your heart learns to accommodate that weight now. And so you can keep moving, but it's still the same size. It's still present with you all the time. And so, yeah, it's, it's strange and it's really hard to articulate with other people, but I, that's why it feels good to talk about it with somebody who understands. Yeah, yeah. You talked a little bit about, well, first of all, I do want to step back because you said something earlier when, before we were talking about a friend of yours who lost a child too, Mm -hmm. and how it's been several years for her, Mm -hmm. but yet sometimes it feels like yesterday. And I just want to bring that up again in that even though it's been two years, there are days when it feels like yesterday and there are days when it feels like it's been 20, right? So there are times like... This has been going on forever and like, nope, it just started and it just feels as deep. So yeah, I just want to bring up that point that the time is, I don't know, it's, it's hard. It is. Time is such a strange thing in that aspect of it. And I will admit that, and I have no shame about this, but I, I went to therapy and Oh yeah. That helped a lot too, because sometimes I can blame everything on the loss and not be accountable for my choices (laughs) or, or I'm ignoring the fact that this is an absolute trauma response because of your loss. Right. And so it's kind of nice to have somebody navigate you through those emotional waters. I don't love just talk therapy for the sake of talk therapy. I want to grow. I want to have homework. I want to evolve past, you know, wherever I feel stuck. And so the big advocate, for that. And so that was an important part of the journey also was even Mm -hmm. though Ellen got me off the couch, she was not my therapist. I had to go do some hard work. (laughs) Did people there know about what had happened to you or not? I was just curious. Oh, so it's kind of interesting. I'll just give you a little behind the scenes of a game show. So all of these big giant games that are on the show, basically they shoot the entire season's worth of that game on the same day. So for instance, I played a game called Don't Leave Me Hanging. Well, because that set is so big and complicated, they don't want to keep moving sets around. So they shoot all that game, you know, uh, several episodes of that game back to back to back. And Ellen just goes and changes her clothes and comes back to match the show. They're going to insert it in, right? Okay. And so the other side of this that is a, a mystery is and they put it all together. But my show did not air for nine months. And so most people think that I filmed the show to the air date. So I filmed it 
in August and it came out Easter day. So it, it was a whole season later and people did not know until like an interview like this, that I actually filmed that six weeks after Chris died. So people didn't know. And I was so contractually restricted from even talking about anything about the show with threat of taking the money away that the only people who knew were my most immediate family. So it was, I was allowed to talk about the show one week before it aired. And I was kind of like, Hey guys, I did a thing. (laughs) (laughs) And so they didn't know that it had been so close, you know, to what, to, to the Mm -hmm. event the year prior. So yeah, it's, it's interesting how, how long it takes for that to come out. Did the people in California on the set know? No, but I did um, because Ellen had, because I'm on a first name basis with her, of course. Um, Right. (laughs) Yeah. So Ellen had reserved the entire hotel for the entire season of contestants. And so the only people there were the people who were on her show. The production staff wardrobe was there. The nursing staff for COVID tests were there. So I had access to the production team. And so the night before I left, I wrote a letter to the production staff because I had access to them and Ellen and said, thank you, because this time in California has healed me. I've lost my son six weeks ago. And the time that I spent in this hotel and the time I got to spend playing on your set gave me hope again. And I I was just full of gratitude. And so I'm hoping that got to the team and to Ellen, just so they know that that, that I am full of gratitude of it. They don't know directly. I didn't tell anybody until that letter. And then I bolted out of town. So I'm hoping they know. Yeah, I I think that was probably the best way to do it. To be in that set of circumstances and for I'm just filled with gratitude about it. So I'm hopeful that they know, but I don't know <laughs> if yeah. they actually do. Yeah. Yeah. So tell us about what has kind of gone on since then because you felt like that started your healing. It it's mm-hmm. funny because I recently talked about grief and a grief journey and how oftentimes you don't start to grieve right away. You have to go through some steps before you can start to grieve and then you can start to grieve. And so I think that was your instigator so that you started to grieve. Yeah, it was. I'm wondering if another instigator was when you were able to have that little funeral service, memorial service, because that can oftentimes be a way to prompt you to start your grieving journey. Yeah, it was. And it was just a little one in our living room, right? All of, I have five kids total and, and uh, most of them are married and parents and my sister. And, and so we had about 22 people in our living room and we just did our own version of a memorial. And yeah, it was special. And then we all went out and got tattoos of the letter C somewhere on us. And so we did a group tattoo party. (laughs) And so it was sweet. And the money that I got from Ellen, the first thing I did was buy a tombstone for Chris. And, you know, that took another nine months to get that in because COVID shipments from around the world were really slow at that time. But that felt good too, is to be able to do that for him. Especially because you felt like you did it with him. You really felt like it was the two of you together doing that. I know. I know. And I got a real, I got a headstone he's going to like, and it's because money wasn't an object. Yeah. And so that did, that did feel good. And then, you know, it's a small enough little mountain cemetery that Steve and I were able to bury his ashes privately by ourselves later on his birthday. And so all of those events were healing layers Mm -hmm. of the journey. And I'll tell you the other piece that, that ended up being cathartic is everyone has a creative outlet of some kind. It could be scrapbooking or writing or crocheting or gardening or songwriting. It could be anything. And I felt like as soon as I was able to get my creative energy back and then devote some of that to him, that also felt really cathartic. And I, it may have even actually been the last piece besides just on uh, living a life without him. That may have been the last part of my intentional healing choices Mm -hmm. was putting some creative energy into him. And if you don't mind, I can tell you a little bit about how I did that, but I have to talk about my book. Okay. (laughs) With your permission, I'm going to plug my book for a minute. Yeah. 
I have written a fiction novel and it's called Mount Hope. And it is basically my love letter to the LGBTQ plus community. And it's set in modern day uh, Topeka, Kansas, and it has two plot lines. One is a young gay man is horribly, brutally murdered in the investigation. And the second part of it is a conversation between the young gay man who's died and Jesus about being gay. And the whole point of this conversation is to really pour healing and love on this community where they have been a little isolated and marginalized from the Christian faith. Mm -hmm. And so it's meant to be this beautiful healing story. So at the end of the book, not only is the crime solved, but Jesus and the young man are done with their conversation and they're going to go to heaven. And in one of the last scenes, this heaven scene opens up and there are multiple people there waiting for them to arrive. People of all ages and sizes and colors. And there's all, everybody's pets are running around like crazy. And they're all there to greet Jesus and the young victim into heaven. And the young victim's dog, who's also been part of this conversation, starts running into the crowd and jumps into the arms of a young black man. And mm -hmm. the victim says to Jesus, who is that? Obviously my dog that means something to him. And he goes, Oh, that's Chris. He's been taking care of your dog until you got here. And it's just the quietest little mention of Chris being in that heaven scene that healed me in a way that I can't explain. I, I will say that there is a false belief that if someone takes their own life that they somehow don't get to go to heaven yeah i don't know where that came from but it's wicked and it's false yeah it's not even in the bible so i don't know who made that up i reject it yeah <laughs> and so i do too yeah thank you mm -hmm. and so the same people who would keep lgbtq plus out of heaven are probably the same people who would keep a suicide choice um, from entering into the gates and so my defiant choice in this book is to love on LGBTQ plus people, but also to put my Chris in heaven whole and healed and not lost and waiting and in his complete fullness as a human being waiting for the rest of us. And knowing that I can put my Chris into something I'm creatively doing, especially when I had to put down the writing and because I was hurting. And then when I picked it back up again, because I was healed enough to sort of begin to express myself, to ex express it with him as part of it at the end, it, it was really, really special to me. And I had an 83-year-old woman actually say to me, I told her that I had lost my son to suicide. And she goes, oh, that's too bad. He won't be in heaven. And I forgave her right away. I forgave her right away. She yeah. It came from ignorance and it's an old belief system. And I just said, I don't believe that. Yeah. I don't believe that. I, I said, I know in my heart, I'm going to see him again one day. And no matter what belief system you come from, uh, mine happens to be Christianity, but whatever belief system you come from, I, I think most of us are hopeful that the afterlife is going to mean a reunion for our family. And so that's, mm -hmm. that's the ultimate hope in the end. That's the whole ultimate catalyst for healing from loss is the hope that you're going to see them again. Mm -hmm. And so- I just defiantly put it in my book called Mount Hope. <laughs> Do you want to talk about your faith and your grief journey and what, and what that looked like? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I am hopelessly devoted and in love with Jesus Christ. And so I have, am unabashedly uh, <laughs> can say that with confidence. But after I lost Chris, it got quiet and it was on my yeah. side. Yeah. It was on my side. It was not him. I felt like I never was left alone, but on my side, I got really quiet. And it's not that I blamed him. It's just, I was sitting in my own blame and suicide is just one of those things. And, and probably all child loss circumstances are met with sort of like, what could I have done differently? Mm -hmm. What choices did I make to contribute to the loss? Right. And so I was sitting in such a place of blame and fear and shame that I couldn't hear his still quiet voice anymore. My, you know, sort of accusing voice in my head was the loudest one. And it was also the one that was telling me, don't feel, don't feel, or you're going to know that it was your fault. And so right. 
it got very quiet, but I never once felt like he left me there or that I was somehow separated from him. I felt like he was always beside me. I was just kind of, if I could put it in a, in a picture, I kind of felt like a, a kid throwing a tantrum, sitting with his arms folded and sitting on the ground, being mad, not talking to anybody. Mm-hmm. That's kind of what my spiritual journey looked like. And it wasn't until I was in that hotel room in Los Angeles that I began to talk to him again. And so I love that I have a savior who is patient with me and will Mm -hmm. sit with me in my grief and not abandon me like a human might. And so faith has been my journey ever since. And I would argue that we are closer on the other side of this loss than I was before. So even though I was dedicating my book and my sort of purpose to healing spirit and LGBTQ plus, you know, I, I felt like I was sort of my purpose was to bridge that gap for them. I would argue that I am closer on the backside of it because you get desperate and you get real when you're sitting in healing. So yeah, I'm nothing but I'm full of gratitude and full of new energy to do things for his glory. I know that that's a, probably a spiritual journey, maybe that your audience is uncomfortable with, but I am grateful that I have something bigger than me to focus on and to dedicate my life to. So yeah, I thank you for asking. That was, you know, you, when you ask that question, you never know what you're going to get. And, mm-hmm. <laughs> and so oh. thank you for being vulnerable enough to ask that question. <laughs> no, I, I think it's important. I feel like it was important for me too, because it is hard. And it is, it's a lonely journey, the Mm -hmm. child loss, child loss Mm -hmm. can feel really lonely. I I remember spending a lot of time with my pastor early on and him reminding me that I haven't been abandoned, that that Jesus is crying right next to me. And yeah, that always had to be until this day, that has to be my vision. Because if I envision it, any other way then I feel a little bit lost and abandoned. But if I think about Jesus crying with me yeah, and, and feeling my pain and understanding that, yeah, then it's different, right? It is. It is different. And it makes up for the lack of human interaction when you feel right. isolated. I, I wrote these scenes in my book, by the way. So in scenes where Jesus is interacting with people who are in pain, He's crying right there with them the whole time. And so I acknowledge what you said and the truth of what you just said. That's exactly how I would express it Mm -hmm. is that he is feeling what I'm feeling. It isn't just a matter of waiting and it's not a matter of even healing. It's a matter of, I'm going to sit here and feel this with you. That's, that's, that's really special. Yeah. And that's what, I don't know. That's what I feel like I had to be like, because you're right in that this can be so isolating, especially I think you you talked about that a little bit again before we started recording about how other people's reaction and and, uh, how you felt treated right afterwards. Do you want to go into that a little bit? Even in the church community? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I love my church community. And I acknowledge that not all church communities are come from a loving place. And I write about that in my book, but I love mine. And I've had lifelong friends in the faith who have supported and loved me through all kinds of chapters in my life. And it was strange for them to be oddly silent Mm -hmm. because you know, even when I lost other people in my life, you know, a parent or, or grandparent, you know, they were there. That's easier to have a conversation about. But losing Chris when you've got addiction and suicide mixed in it was tricky. It got quiet. And I, because I was that, again, picture a child with their arms crossed, sort of pouting mm-hmm. in the corner, because I was already in that place, it was super easy to transfer my bitterness towards other people who are oddly silent right now. And so mm-hmm. I, I have to admit, I was like, kind of mad. I'm like, where are my people? Yeah. And so, but they snapped out of it eventually. And especially when I came home, you know, sort of skipping from California, then it gave them permission to sort of, or it gave them a safety to approach me again. But I, I found that my husband got lots more attention than I did because he was in the public, right? He was back at school. He's 
president of clubs. He he got a lot of the faith community attention and they and they assumed that probably that he would convey that to me. And it just isn't the same, right? It no. isn't the same as someone reaching out to you directly. So it's strange. I would argue that if you're in a faith community and there's a loss in a family, don't just talk to one person. Talk to the siblings and the wife and the husband and the mom. Talk to them all because sometimes you think you can just talk to one member and it somehow magically reaches everyone and it and it doesn't work that way. So so it's tough. It was hard for me to sort of get past my bitterness a little bit. But once you begin to have gratitude, it, it gets easier. Well, I think that's definitely true that you just feel... I've always said to people, it is better for you to say the wrong thing than you to say nothing. Oh, yeah, that's good. Yeah, I tell people that a lot because especially like at work, people feel like they don't want to say the wrong thing, so they just don't say anything. And I do have to say, you know, yesterday came and went, and I, of course, took the day off because I can't work that day. And, mm-hmm. and only one person from work sent me a message yesterday. Yeah. And interestingly, a non-Christian person. <laughs> and yeah. I have worked with many Christian people and, and they yeah. didn't. I I think they felt like, oh, I don't want her to be sad. They're, I cried all day yesterday. You were not going to yeah. make me more sad. But <laughs> the acknowledgement would have been a little bit nice. And so I'm thinking yeah. back to our office manager on Andy's birthday sent me a message and I or maybe I can't remember it was Andy's birthday or Mother's Day something some sort of thing oh I know we had a dedication for a camp thing that was dedicated to him and she said I hope you can enjoy the day or something and and which was not really the right thing to say but but yet she said something right. and I just said thank you and then she said I didn't know what to say I thought that might not be right but I thought I should <laughs> say it anyway and and I said you know, and then I wrote back to her. I said, thank you for saying something. And you're right. It yeah. wasn't quite the right word because I'm yeah. probably not going to enjoy it. I'll, I will appreciate it, I think I said. But enjoy is probably not the right word. But I yeah. so appreciate the effort that you went through and to not be scared to just say something, right? Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. I agree. And I love that she even admitted I don't know what to say. So I hope that I didn't make things worse, you know, or however she said it. I I just think the greatest gift you could give a grieving mom or dad is to talk about their, their child that they lost. No question. If you could just acknowledge that he existed and that he brought you joy or that stories about him, like that's the greatest gift you could give is just to talk about him and acknowledge that he existed you know, and you're right. We're, we're human. We just want to protect our friends from sad things. And so, uh, mm-hmm. you know, we don't want to bring it up, but truly it is, it is a gift. And to everyone out there, appreciate them when they happen, even when they're awkward and, mm-hmm. <laughs> and not quite the right words, there's still a gift. It still was a gift. Yeah. Absolutely. Because they acknowledged he existed. So my book is dedicated to Matthew Shepard. And you may be too young to know who Matthew Shepard is, but he was a victim. No, I do. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Well, he he died, you know, over 20 years ago in Wyoming with an LGBTQ plus hate crime. And so he was mm-hmm. killed because he was gay at age 19. And my book is dedicated to the Matthew Shepard Foundation. And I sent a copy of the book to his parents. And there's actually a bio on the back of the book too. And so I sent it to them. I had their permission, of course, to, to put all that yeah. in the book, but I sent it to them and it was... In the letter I sent to them was kind of in this vein that you and I are talking about. It's just, I want, I want to acknowledge that your son existed and that what you're doing in his absence and the, the changes that you're making in his name are making a difference. And they have in my life. And I hope that you feel and know that his life was lost, was not in vain, you know? So I was desperately trying to find the right words to express Mm -hmm. this to this family who lost somebody over 20 years ago. And it's hard. It's tricky. And I may not have said the right things, but I think as a parent, I'm like, no, anyone acknowledging that my son lived and that it mattered is going to Mm -hmm. be a gift to me. Yeah. I got a text message from Andy's best friend, last night before I went to bed and I mean it just it brought I mean I just so appreciated the fact that he missed him right yeah missed him 
And how beautiful that he told you, because he's probably, what, 18 now? Yeah, going away to college. He's he's going off to Michigan State, and he said, Andy should be going with me. And then he did say, but in some ways, Andy is going with me because he's always with me. Oh, so, I love that. That was beautiful, too. Do you get kind of moments of supernatural presence of Andy occasionally or any kind of confirmation that he might be? I would say occasionally I do. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and and just silly things happen. I mean, yesterday, of co- all days, you know how you, I've got an iPhone and the iPhone will make videos for you, right? Yeah. Of like pictures. Yeah. Yesterday, uh, the video was called Memories of Andy. No way. Like, wow. my iPhone does not, should not know that Andy is gone. And it, I know. it's interesting because all of the pictures were of Andy except for two were actually of Peter because it gets confused because they look quite alike. But, you know, that's just something that you would not expect to just randomly happen. And it didn't feel like yeah. it, it randomly happened that it was yesterday, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. I agree. I agree. And I, I can't say that, that I've had a lot of experiences like that. But occasionally I'll have a friend come up to me and say, I feel like I got a message from Chris yesterday for you. Yeah. So those moments, I actually read some of those at his memorial service and just, and it it was, I'm reading them, but I can hear his voice saying that and using those words and it's in his language. And, and so it's always such a, you know, when we were talking about other people and how they express the loss to you in some form or another, I've had a handful of people say they've gotten messages from Chris and this is what I, th- or I dreamt about Chris last night and this yeah. is what was happening. And so I don't personally have those things. And so when someone goes out of their way to share that with me, oh, that's magical. That's yeah. really magical. So yeah. um, I was just curious if you got those every once in a while. Yeah. And I'm with you that I tend to get more from other people than I get myself for some reason. But, I know. Um, Mm-hmm. I'm so jealous, but I'm I'm grateful regardless. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> exactly. So do you want to tell people how they could get your book? Oh, well, hey. Okay. Plug in your book. Let's talk about it. Thank you. Okay. So it's called Mount Hope and my name is Kelly Wolf and I have a website. It's called kellywolf.com. So it's K-E-L-L-I-E. And then the last name is W-O-O-L-F. And I actually wrote a blog on there that was about Chris because I, you know, it's sort of an unwritten rule in literature that you don't introduce a new character late in the story. And all of a sudden, you know, this Chris character pops up in the last chapter. And so I wrote a blog about who's Chris on page 387 and said, I put him in there and, and shared the same story that I shared with you. And so on the website, you'll find character sketches and a song list. There's a strong musical theme running through the book and you can buy it on Amazon. So you can go to my website, but to buy it, it's only available on Amazon and you can buy a beautiful hardcover or you can buy the Kindle version. We'll have a soft cover later in the year, but I'm really, really proud of it. And I've gotten some really good feedback from the LGBTQ plus community who is my audience, honestly. So if anybody is familiar with the book, The Shack from a dozen years ago, um, they made a movie out of it. It's kind of a combination of the Da Vinci Code and the Shack. So it's an amazing sort of detective thriller mystery. And then it's also sort of this spiritual journey conversation between the victim and Jesus. So it's, it's, there's nothing else out there like it. And I am incredibly proud of it. So you can find it on Amazon. Yeah. Well, and as I said at the very beginning, you have done something that certainly not any of my other guests have ever done. So I've had, <laughs> I've had authors come on, but most of them are telling true stories. So it's yeah. kind of cool to have a, a fiction author too, especially Thank one you. with such a important message and theme and just sounds beautiful. So thank, thank you. Thank you. 
Thank you very much. I appreciate that. I had, it took seven years to write the book. And when I started writing it, um, I was about six to 10 chapters in and the same sex marriage act um, had just been passed by the Supreme court. And so I kind of put the book down and thought, Oh, this community doesn't need me anymore. I had naively thought utopia was going to be granted and they were going to be given equal rights and, you know, be healed and whole as a community. And then quickly realized that that wasn't the magic wand that I hoped it was. It was an important important first step, but it was not um, a complete make everything easy from that point. And then my, I have a daughter who was assigned male at birth and transitioned to female. And then I picked my book back up again and had some fresh uh, purpose for it and worked on it. And then Chris died and I put it down again. And so that's why it took seven years for it to finally come to fruition. And honestly, it's a different book seven years later than it would have been had I tried to attempt to finish it in the beginning. That's what I was just going to say. I mean, it just yeah. turned into a much different thing, much more meaningful, I would say, with all of those events in your life and, and how it was able to change and morph in, in a positive way. Yeah, I agreed. And I needed to go through some challenges and some healing and some growth to produce the work that I ended up with. So I'm grateful to, to God to sort of navigate me through that, but also to my family who <laughs> watched the journey too. So <laughs> I, I'm filled with gratitude and pride about it. So yeah, thank you for asking. I appreciate the chance to talk about it. Well, and thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. I am super glad to be here. And I think what you're doing is really important. I'm really proud of you and your audience for sitting in their emotions and their feelings and their loss and being intentional about processing them. So thank you for participating in that. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for listening. If you found this helpful and would like to support the podcast, please leave a five-star rating and comment. To help financially, you can text Andy's Mom to the number 53555 or visit the donate page on andysmom.com. Your donations are secure and tax-deductible, and we are now able to accept Venmo, PayPal, and Apple Pay. Always Andy's Mom is a registered 501c3 organization and can receive donations through smile.amazon.com, Thrive in Financial, and Benevity, amongst others. Marcy loves hearing from listeners. Please feel free to reach out to her via email at marcy at andysmom.com. Also, be sure to sign up for the email list to receive weekly updates as well as pictures of all of Marcy's guests and their children. Together, let's work to inspire hope one day at a time.